Chapter 14 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tina from Vancouver. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867 to 1923 chapter 14 part 10 the development of the types of introversion and extroversion in the analytical process the description of the analysis of the unconscious would be incomplete if a word were not said about the question whether this method is equally applicable to the two types as a matter of fact both the development and the conception of the unconscious are different for each type Although making every effort to find out a formulation that shall be as universally valid as possible, we must emphatically impress upon our minds the fact that the two modes of conception of the types are essentially different. A universal formulation that is just only becomes possible when both standpoints are given equal consideration. I do not conceal from myself the fact that this subject is of less interest to the layman than to the specialist. Nevertheless, certain aspects of the question are of such great character that the layman should not find the perusal of this last section entirely without interest. Let us first consider the conception of the unconscious. I have here introduced the unconscious under the conception of a psychological function, namely, the function of the sum of all those psychic contents which do not reach the threshold of consciousness. I have divided the unconscious materials into personal, that is, to reminiscence attributable to personal experiences, combinations, and tendencies, and into interpersonal collective content, that is, those whose content cannot be attributed to personal experiences. The contents of the psyche are fundamentally images indicating function on one hand, and upon the other, objects and the world generally. The conscious contains the recent object images, the personal unconscious, the object images of the individual past, so far as they have either been forgotten or repressed. Whilst the absolute or collective unconscious contains the inherited world images generally, under the form of primordial images or mythical themes, all psychic images have two sides, the one being directed toward the object is as faithful a likeness of the object as possible, framed without any intention or obligation to be anything else. The other side is directed towards the soul, that is towards the psychic function and the laws particular to it. Let us take as an example a primordial image of a hero myth. There is in the West a demon ancestress with a large mouth. The hero creeps into it, and at the same moment a certain little bird sings. The ancient dame shuts her mouth with a bang, and the hero disappears. The side of the image directed toward the physical object means the sun goes down in the evening into the mouth of the ocean. At this hour a certain little bird sings, which is an objective fact, and the sun disappears into the depths of the sea. The side of the image directed towards the soul, that is the idea, 
signifies the energy contained in consciousness disappears, like the sun in the evening, into the monster of the unconscious. If we consider the collective unconscious from the side of the soul or idea, it is something entirely distinct, and it must be differentiated, abstracted from the object, if its contents are to attain the perfection of an idea. If, on the other hand, we consider the collective unconscious from the side of the physical object, that is, as an image of an object, it is weaker and less clear than the object itself, and can only be brought to perfection if it is objectified, that is, projected on to the object itself. As previously explained, there are two types of human psychology that can be clearly distinguished, viz. introversion and extroversion. The introvert is characterized by the thought standpoint, the extrovert by the feeling standpoint. As I showed, they are quite different in their relation to the object. The introvert abstracting from the object and thinking about it, whilst the extrovert goes to the object and feels himself into it. The accent of value lies upon the ego for the introvert, but upon the object for the extrovert. The former chief concern is the preservation of the ego, that of the latter the preservation of the object. The two types will adopt a different attitude towards the unconscious, namely the introvert will and must seize the idea side of the unconscious image. The extrovert, on the other hand, seizing the side of the physical reflection. The introvert will purify as far as possible the idea side from the alloy of the concretistic admixture of the physical image in order to arrive at the abstract idea. Whilst, on the other hand, the extrovert will purify the physical image as far as possible from the fantastic admixture of the enveloping ideas. The former, by raising himself to a world of idea, will endeavor to overcome the disturbing influence of the unconscious, whilst the latter will approach the object as near as possible and project the unconscious image into the physical object, thus freeing himself from the grip of the unconscious. What for the extrovert is a fantastic and disturbing admixture in the unconscious picture is for the introvert precisely that which has the most value, for it is the germ of the pure idea, and vice versa, what for the introvert are merely concretistical imperfections, survivals of a physical origin, are for the extrovert a most valuable hint, a bridge by which unconscious can be united with the object. This description makes it manifest that the two types go contrary ways in the course of the development of their unconscious, arriving therefore at opposite extremes the one at the idea, the other at the object of his feeling. The psychological characteristics of the types are eventually pushed to extremes, where according to the enantiodromic laws, the moment has arrived when in each case the other function enters into its fully acknowledged right, that is, feeling in the case of the introvert and thought in that of the extrovert. The introvert attains the lacking function of autonomous feeling by means of a differentiation and enhancement of his thought, whilst the extrovert, on the other hand, attains his thinking by the way of an increasingly differentiated love. These functions that hitherto 
where secondary are found at first in the unconscious, gradually reaching consciousness in the course of development. At birth state are unconscious functions in a state that is more or less incompatible with consciousness and have the typical qualities of unconscious content. These qualities are such as are not tolerated in the consciousness. The lunatic Schreber says most amply that the language of God, the unconscious, is a somewhat archaic but vigorous German, of which he gives a few striking examples, as the contrary function that emerges from the unconscious into consciousness differs to such an extent from what appears to be acceptable to consciousness. The necessity arises of a technique for coming to terms with the contrary function. It is impossible to accept the contrary function as it stands, as it always drags extraneous qualities and accompanying circumstances with it from the absolute unconscious. Though the above-described development, the extrovert has acquired an adaptation to the object that is absolutely real and free from all fantasies. He will therefore be able to turn his attention toward the alloy, which for the introvert was the valuable germ of ideas. From this, he will then develop similar ideas to those which the introvert has already developed. Vice versa, the introvert will now be able to turn his attention to those materials which before he was obliged to reject, as being sidetracks on the road to physical reality. That is, he will carry out the same clearing and would knowing in his feeling relations that the extrovert has already completed. The development of the contrary function that was hitherto unconscious leads to individuation beyond the type, and thereby to a new relation to the world and mind. The process which begins with the complementation of the types is the transcendental function, which leads to a new adaptation by means of the clearing and knowing of unconscious feelings and thoughts that have been brought up by the contrary function that have been neglected. Following the old maxim, Naturum si secumur ducem nunquam abirabimis, we have obeyed the natural impulse of the thinker to carry the principle of thought through to its utmost perfection attainable, as also that of the feeler, of carrying the principle of feeling through to the end. By these means, the salutary extreme was produced, to wit, the hunger, the desire for the compensatory function. For, by means of thought, the one is landed in a lifeless, ice-cold world of crystalline ideas, whereas, by means of feeling, the other reaches a limitless ocean of never-ending flood of sentiment. The former will, therefore, yearn for living, warmth of feeling, and the latter for the restrictive precision and solidity of thought. An enrichment of the individual is attained by this compensatory process, giving him greater decision and the possibility of a harmony that is complete in itself. The assimilation of the contrary function discloses new inner springs, which guarantee to the individual considerably greater independence from external conditions. This acquisition is an indisputable advantage that none would like to surrender in the face of the fact so unavoidably connected with it, that a new adaptation and orientation of this kind places the individual in a certain contrast to the great bulk of people who yet have the old attitude. This contrast is no drawback. It is rather a welcome and effective spur to life and work. 
for thereby is created the channel required by our psychic energy for its development. 11. General Remarks on the Therapy I have still to draw the reader's attention to an important fact. Throughout the course of this paper, I have seemed to associate the idea of disturbance or even apparel with the unconscious. But it would give a false impression if we were only to emphasize the dangerous side of the unconscious. The unconscious is a source of danger when the individual is not at one with it. If we succeed in establishing the function or attitude that I call transcendental, the disharmony ceases and we are permitted to enjoy the favorable side of the unconscious. In such case, the unconscious vouchsafes us from furtherance and assistance which bountiful nature is always ready to give to man in overflowing abundance. The unconscious possesses possibilities of wisdom that are completely closed to consciousness. For the unconscious has at its disposal not only all the psychic contents that are under the threshold because they have been forgotten or overlooked, but also the wisdom of the experience of untold ages, deposited in the course of time and lying potential in the human brain. The unconscious is continually active, creating combinations of its materials. These serve to indicate the future path of the individual. It creates perspective combinations just as our consciousness does. Only they are considerably superior to the conscious combinations both in refinement and extent. The unconscious may therefore be an unparalleled guide for human beings. The reader must on no account suppose that the complicated psychological changes described must all be passed through in every individual case. In practice, the treatment is adjusted according to the therapeutic result attained. The particular result arrived at may be reached at any stage of the treatment, quite apart from the seriousness or duration of the malady. The treatment of a serious case may last a long time without the higher phases of the evolution ever being reached or needing to be reached. There are comparatively few people who, after attaining the desired therapeutical results, pursue the further stages of evolution for the sake of their own development. It is, therefore, not the seriousness of the case which obliges one to pass through the whole development. In any case, only those people attain a higher degree of differentiation who are by nature destined and called to it, that is, who have both a capacity and tendency toward the higher differentiation. This is a matter in which people are extremely different, just as among species of animals there are some that are stationary and conservative, and others that are evolutionary. Nature is aristocratic, but not in the sense of having reserved the possibility of differentiation exclusively for those species that stand high. Similarly, the possibility of the psychological development of human beings is not reserved for specially gifted individuals. In other words, neither special intelligence nor any other talent is necessary in order to achieve a far-reaching psychological development. Inasmuch as in this development moral qualities step in to supplement where intellect does not suffice. 
but it must not be supposed under any circumstances that the treatment consists in grafting general formulas and complicated doctrines on to people. This is not so. Each one can acquire that which he needs after his own fashion and in his own language. What I have here presented is only the intellectual formulation of the subject, founded upon preliminary scientific study of an empirical as well as a theoretical nature. But this formulation does not become a subject of discussion in the ordinary practical analytical work. The brief notes of cases that I have inserted give an approximate idea of the practical side of analysis. The reader should realize that our new understanding of psychology has a side that is entirely practical and another that is entirely theoretical. It is not merely a practical method of treatment or education, but it is also a scientific theory that is closely related to other coordinated sciences. Conclusion In conclusion, I must beg the reader to pardon me for having ventured to say so many new and obtruse things in such a brief compass. I lay myself open to adverse criticism, because I conceive it to be the duty of everyone who isolates himself by taking his own path, to tell others what he has found or discovered, whether it be a refreshing spring for the thirsty, or a sandy desert of sterile error. The one helps, the other warns. Not the opinion of any individual contemporary will decide the truth and error of what has been discovered but rather future generations and destiny. There are things that are not yet true today. Perhaps we are not yet permitted to recognize them as true, although they may be true tomorrow. Therefore, every pioneer must take his own path, alone but hopeful, with the open eyes of one who is conscious of its solitude and of the perils of its dim precipice. Our age is seeking a new spring of life. I found one and drank of it, and the water tasted good. That is all that I can or want to say. My intention and my duty to society is fulfilled when I have described, as well as I can, the way that led me to the spring. The reproaches of those who do not follow this way have never troubled me, nor ever will. New ideas always encounter resistance from the old. That always was and always will be the case. It appertains to the self-regulation of mental progress. End of chapter 14. Recording by Tina, Vancouver, BC.